Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 70. Today in the show, the season opener is on our doorstep. We're reviewing a number of easy ways to royally screw up your hunting season. And spoiler alert, you are not supposed to do these things. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by Sitka Gear. Now, today with hunting season either started for some folks or starting soon, you know, Dan and I decided that we are just going to dive into a handful of different screw-ups that you do not want to make in the coming months. Now, that's assuming you're interested in killing a mature buck. So, it's going to be an interesting chat. And it's also going to be kind of laid back. You know, we do not have a guest today, but we have for the past few weeks. And those have been great and super informational. But, you know, we kind of enjoy kicking back a little bit and talking just the two of us. So that's the plan. It should be fun. And, uh, Dan, you ready to uh, let loose a little bit? I'm never not letting loose. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I always, I'm always letting loose. That's true. We, I always let it fly in we, public. You know we, what I mean? <laughs> Yes, I think okay. so. <laughs> Good. Now, now that we got that straightened out, we we can only try to restrain you a little bit, and that's that's a challenge. You can only hope to contain me. Yeah, it's not likely. People, you know, people really, you know, that awesome Detroit Lions running back. What was his name? Barry Sanders. <laughs> yeah. People compare me to him a lot. Oh, really? Yeah, they're like, man, you're just you're like Barry Sanders. You look very much alike. Well, aside from looks, uh, <laughs> I got I got mad juking skills too, and my personality is like how he runs, just all over the place. I'll give you the last one. Okay, I, I can't, I'm not sure about the juking. I feel like you're more of like a big tree fall hard type, but uh, okay. Well, I tell you what, just wait until we get up in the mountains, and we'll see who's laughing. <laughs> yeah, we will. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, no, I'm dying speaking of <laughs> speaking of that. I got a question for you. This uh, elk hunt that we're going on, is this going to be um, no man left behind or slow man it gets left behind type of type of hunt? Yeah, no, I'm a big believer in survival of the fittest. So, okay. you know, okay. <laughs> if you okay. survive, that's great, but you know, I can't guarantee it. So if my leg snaps, you're just like, well, you know, here's a gun with one bullet in it, buddy, type of thing. <laughs> Call me if you get out. <laughs> I'll meet you at the truck. <laughs> no, it's gonna be fine. It'll uh, it'll be fun. I'm getting excited about it. We, uh, man, we've been all over the place and over the last year figuring out what we're gonna do, mm-hmm. and it's been you know this and then that and then this and now finally this again. Um, but I'm excited. We're gonna do a pretty cool trip. So it's less than two weeks from now. We're gonna well, two weeks from now we will be in the mountains chasing elk and um you are gonna love it my friend you are gonna absolutely love it i've been listening to a lot of jock jams to pump myself up for it <laughs> that's the typical elk pump up session music is, is that's jock what, jams that's what i read somewhere anyway <laughs> what are you reading <laughs> blogs <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh 
It's cool. I've been listening to a bunch of like different bugling YouTube videos. I know you have too, just because that gets me all tingly inside. So <laughs> I'm stoked. We're, again, already off track. That's kind of how we roll when it's that just is. you and me, Dan. But uh, whitetail stuff. Whitetail you been stuff. doing any fun whitetail stuff since we chatted last? Nope. Nothing. You're just... Nope. Other than shooting my bow, I got my... I had my weekend, my my weekend where I went out with, you know, Ben and we sat a couple stands and since then, um, father, husband, you know, guardian to a Maltese, I, you know, it's like you don't really get to go out that much anymore, especially when my, uh, when my property is so far away. But I don't know if I covered this last week. I went to, I was driving around the area like I always do. And, um, uh, around, doing some, go- yep, around where, yep, around where I live, one mile from my front step, I saw a 160 and a well over 170 10 pointer with junk off his G2s Ooh. standing in the middle of this hay field. Wow. So I found the farmer, I got access to his property. Nice. But, but here's the problem. We have, it must have just been the right moon phase or whatever, wind direction, temperature, just the perfect timing. Because the property to the east is a, like a, a horse rehabilitation center. The property to, uh, on, let's see, the other, let's see, the other property is a residential, a family lives on like just a square chunk of CRP and the timber is like a quarter mile away from it. So I think after I get off the phone with you, I'm going to go set up a trail camera in hopes to at least catch them on, on camera. So on the farm you have access to, is there any huntable ground and trees you can get up in? It's going to be a, it's going to have to be a ground blind situation. They're standing, they're standing corn on this property. And then just CRP or other stuff or what? Well, like I said, residential. So the 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 horse pasture butts right up to this little opening in the gate where I feel these deer are coming through, and and then to on the other side of it is a house with inside of a giant CRP field, and this there's like a strip of trees that are very small that come all the way up to this field, and. But it's 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 like a fence row, an old fence row that they tore the fence down but left the trees in. And then the main chunk of timber where I feel they were bedding is like a quarter mile away. Gotcha. Interesting. So, so if you get them on camera, are you going to try to do an early season setup? Mm-hmm. That's, that's sweet. The, that's the point. And I've knocked on a couple of the door, other doors in the area and haven't had a chance to talk with anybody yet. But um, – I'm still going to try to access the main chunk of, of timber to see if I can get in get in it that way. And who knows? Who knows what will happen? Heck yeah, man. That's awesome. When yeah. you uh, can find something close to your house like that, that's oh, yeah. super helpful for you too, given your you know obligations and stuff. That's right. That's right. So it makes uh, makes it easy when I can tell the wife, hey, I'll be right back. Yeah. And then drive out there. I've I've driven by the property like four or five other times and haven't seen a single deer in the field. So I don't know if it was just right wind, right time type of deal or, or, uh, maybe they got spooked out or I don't know, but. Well, they're in the area. They're in the area. That's, that's right. That's sweet. Well, I don't have any booner sightings to, uh, to share. Oh, well, did I tell you about the Michigan giant I saw just after Ohio? Did I tell you about that? 
you mentioned something to me. I don't know. Did you get any pictures of it? I got film of him. Um, okay. Like the the day I got back from our Ohio trip, I must have told you about this. Um, I was out there in Michigan driving around and saw just an absolute toad, the biggest buck I've seen in Michigan in, in a couple of years. Um, I'm pretty sure he was north of 170. So that was cool. I watched him for like 20 minutes from the side of the road. He was with another couple nice bucks way back in a soybean field, and they just didn't care, which is really unique in Michigan. Usually, even if there's deer way far away, if you stop, they're gone in like 10 seconds. But these deer didn't care. So that was fun to watch those guys. And uh, other than that, though, nothing exciting on trail camera here. Checked again, just the same. Well, this <laughs> this time, no bucks at all, zero bucks in the last 13 days so that's really encouraging um but i am doing a bunch of work on uh, these properties getting some final things done since i you know you know the story i've been gone so last minute stuff uh got my food plots planned on friday which was something i've been stressing about trying to hopefully get rain and I finally had rain in the forecast on saturday and sunday so spent a good chunk of time on friday getting all that planted I did get some rain on Saturday, not quite as much as I was hoping for, but better than nothing. So now I've just got my fingers crossed, hoping that we will have something else come here in the next couple of days and, and keep those babies growing, because uh, if I don't, they're going to be in trouble. But that's kind of all new with me. I did check on a couple tree stands, did some more final trimming, a um, couple things like that, just made sure everything in Michigan was good to go. But, but yeah, now I'm done in Michigan. Everything's set. I'm not going to be going in the woods anymore till October. So I think I'm going to I'm going to try to force uh it's going to piss my wife off, but I'm going to force uh, a trail camera check maybe let's see you're you're picking me up next Sunday. Yeah. And uh I think I'm going to maybe run down on Saturday to go check my trail cameras and uh that way I can you know have a good idea of what's going on because September, you know, we're getting back somewhere like the 19th or the 20th, and then um, and then I actually am busy the following weekend, and then the weekend after that, opening opening weekend. So it's on. It's going to be your fest. Yeah, that's the yep. truth. Well, uh, that'll be good. You'll check your cameras, you know, that weekend, and I'm actually planning on trying to do a day trip down to Ohio um, next week. Nice. So we'll have a final trail camera pull from there too. So then we should have our final velvet trail camera photos from Iowa and Ohio at least. Are you um, are you gonna be able to get to yours? When are you getting your Iowa property? Iowa property. I'm probably not gonna get to check till I go in October. Okay. Um, gotcha. Gotcha. Unless, well, I, I mean, I was gonna say when I swing by to pick you up, I could potentially stop by, but I don't think we want to put any more time on that. So. I'll just have Ohio, but right. uh, we'll at least be able to compare those two. That's right. So I'm really excited to see uh, how they finished off, especially Glenn, since I didn't have any pictures of him since early July, and I think he had a lot more growing to do. So excited to see him. I just last night watched one of our old videos from three years ago from Wired to Hunt um, that showed our first rut in on our Ohio property me and my buddy Josh and I was watching old video the first time yeah first time we saw Glenn um we saw him like three times that first week in November running around he was probably like a 115 to 120 inch eight pointer with a missing g3 and uh it's cool to look at him then 
and now see what he is now and just what an unbelievable jump he's taken in body size and antler size and man three years history will be pretty cool so hopefully uh hopefully he'll stick around i'm excited to see i know a lot of people focus on the antlers but one thing that i've been recently doing is i get a trail camera picture and i you know obviously the buck the antlers will tell you who the buck is because that's where their character lies but i like to put a trail camera picture of a buck from the previous year or the year before next to the same buck you know from this year and i cover their antlers up and they make huge jumps on a body scale too oh yeah in like in from their two-year-old to their four-year-old body or even from their three-year-old to their four-year-old body and then after that it just looks like you know some of these bucks are looking like bodybuilders i mean they got your fat bucks and then you got your ripped bucks and man i got a couple bucks that look like horses like straight up defined shoulders you know up muscles in their in their hindquarters and they're sunken in shoulders and it just they look like they have horse bodies and it's I love I love that. Yeah, just a big old mature yeah. huge body buck. I yeah, I I've killed some, you know, 3 and 4 year olds that um, you know, were decent sized bucks. Um and then the 5 year old I killed a couple of years ago was in the winter, so he was, you know, smaller body. He didn't have his big right up body. I still want to kill just a huge bodied crazy rutted up buck just one of those mega toad body wise buck that's really what i'm hoping to get this oh, year yeah. um here's a one question. where the, the taxidermist has to make a special mount yeah, for you just because his forehead is so huge yep um did you see our video of the day-to-day on wired hunt by any chance i have not had a chance to, to check that out so it was a video of uh dan perez from whitetail properties mm-hmm. and it was just a quick clip from one of his hunts and he had a really big bodied mature six-pointer come in and he ended up passing on it um but it reminded me of you know my encounters with that buck a few years ago, six shooter who was just a giant six pointer like four years ago. Um, and I'm curious if you had one of these huge bodied deer that was obviously four, obviously five, just like chunky, big, mature deer. But he's just a big frame six pointer. Yeah. When you're there in Iowa, you've got all these you know crazy huge antler deer. Would you take that buck? Oh yeah, in a heartbeat. For me, it's mature. That's what that's what puts the deer on my hit list is mature is maturity. Yeah, I I mean, would it be awesome to have a wall with uh, giant antlers on it? Yes, but one thing I always I always do is when I go to the Iowa Deer Classic, you look you walk around the the Hall of Fame or the where they have all the mounts from out from out the year, and big antlers stick out, and that's awesome. But what really sticks out is a gigantic necked big bodied mount of a deer what you're just like holy cow that is a huge buck yeah uh what about this one let's say you've got a big one of your big shooters obviously mature but he broke off half his rack he's in front of you what would you do then Mm. depends on how old he is if he's a four or five year old i'd probably let him walk and if I have a lot of history with him, let's say, let's say, well, Ryan Eiberg is going to get an arrow, even if he's got both antlers broken off this year, because I just don't know if he's going to make it. Yeah. He's, you know, he's seven years old this year. So, you know, he's, he has the potential to start going down, but 
you know, we have all the, all these other deer that seem to be making it through the, through the years. Like if Tupac came by with broken antler, like just one antler, even though I shot him before and love to shoot that buck again, good chance I'd let him walk knowing that he's only a five-year-old. Gotcha. So, or five or six-year-old this year. So, you know, and I have some other deer like that. It would be, it, it's one of those things where you can't really make that kind of decision until you see them and, and have that opportunity. How about yourself? Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, to the six-pointer, I would definitely take an, a big six-pointer if he was super mature. Um, again, you know, it, the body size, age of a deer would be awesome. Though, I mean, like, let's be honest, too. Um, I mean, we, we do enjoy – and I, this is one of those things that I struggle with, like, internally in my head because I personally, you know, have a I – don't, I don't believe I am and I don't want to be um, someone who's just, you know, who just cares about – you know, antlers. And, and I'm not, obviously, because I, I care about a lot of aspects of the hunt, the maturity. I, I like hunting mature deer because of the challenge, because of the rarity. And I think maybe as I try to, like, rationalize myself, like, why do I care about antlers? Um, it's not that I want it just for, like, some trophy that hangs on the wall, like a basketball trophy. That's not it. Um, and the way I kind of, as I self-analyze all this stuff, I kind of think of it like I value and appreciate the rarity of a deer like that. And it has value, not just because it's something cool to look at, but because it's difficult to even find deer like that, to see deer like that. Um, and and there's an appreciation for that beauty, that uniqueness that, uh, I don't know, but there is something to be said about antlers. And I think it's okay to be excited about antlers. It's okay to talk about big antlers. Um, as long as that's at least again, I'm rambling here, but for me in my head, as long as that's not all you care about, I think, you know, that's, that's healthy. Um, so when it comes to antlers and a mature deer, let's say there's a huge six year old body deer that comes rolling in, let's say on my Ohio property. And I've got, you know, numerous bucks that are four to six years old. I've got bunch in the 150 plus category. So there's lots of options there. I want to kill a mature deer. Um, if I had a big bodied, huge bodied, mature six pointer come in, I would take that deer probably. Um, but I would definitely be sitting there thinking like, uh, you know, because there is the chance for these deer I have history with. Um, yeah, I don't even know in that situation in Ohio because, you know, if Glenn and Junkyard and JJ and all these guys are around and if I'm seeing them and I have history with them, um, it, like you said, it comes down to like an in-the-moment decision of, you know, do I want to end my season now? Because in Ohio, that's it. You get one tag and you're done. Um, and there is something to be said about just being picky. No matter what your criteria is, it's kind of fun to be really picky and have to, you know, meet that challenge. Yep. Um, but I can tell you what, most anywhere else, if I'm in, even in Iowa or obviously here in Michigan, if there's a super big mature buck, I'm not too, I'm not going to care too much about what the antlers are. Um, yeah. I'm going to be slinging an arrow because uh, mature deer like that are not easy to hunt. Right. Right. Period. Period. I mean, it's not like, it's not like rack dictates their intelligence, <laughs> which right. The hunting industry kind of makes it seem like it's, it's, you know, it's all about the rack. It's, it's not, it's about the age. And that's what's, that's what's hard to kill. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know. I just went around in a circle there for about five minutes. (laughs) That's all right. Hey, you know, this is a no holds barred type of podcast today. Isn't no bars held? I don't, I don't even, how's that saying go? Haven't you seen the movie with Hulk Hogan? called no holds bars no (laughs) 
I know that's how I know is because I watched a movie with Hulk Hogan in it. Well, if he <laughs> he is a source on all things uh, reputable about grammar, so I'd say that's right. pretty good. <laughs> um, all right, so we've 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 successfully talked for twenty minutes about maybe nothing, um, but what we were planning on talking about today was you know some different ways that you can royally screw up your hunting season. And you and me both have uh, experienced some of these. And I know in a past episode, I don't know, earlier this year, we talked about some of our biggest mistakes that you and me have made over the years. Um, But today what I want to do is talk about some of the very most common mistakes that, you know, the average hunter makes out there and talk about, you know, what those might be. Because these are things that a lot of guys are probably going to be encountering in the coming weeks or month. So talk through some of those most popular, most common mistakes and, you know, share how we've dealt with them, how we would recommend others deal with them. And then who knows? I, I never know where these conversations might go, and it's just you and me. So this is kind of a loosey-goosey episode. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say we just talk about some of these issues, some of these mistakes, and, and see what happens. What, uh, what do you think about that? Let's do it. Yeah, I agree. So before we do get into the meat and potatoes of today's episode, though, we do need to pause briefly for a word from our sponsor of this podcast, Sitka Gear. Now, last week in our series with Sitka, I asked product category leader Dennis Zuck why Sitka doesn't use carbon or some other scent-eliminating technology in most of their gear. And he shared that Sitka will only bring technology to market that can be absolutely proven to be effective. And that's why they don't use carbon, but do use technologies like polygene in their base layers. But... If there's not more scent control tech in this gear, I want to know what Sika's perspective is on how we should practice scent control in their clothes. So here's Dennis on that question. Yeah, yeah. So we we actually, you know, in our in our process of thinking about the unmet needs and the pain points of whitetail scent comes up, you know, and one of the products we're going to be launching in 15 is our launching pad, you know, and it was really born off that, and we've all done it. We've all stood on the on the, the hood of on the top of our totes and broke them up and danced to get into our rubber boots. Um, we believe you keep your product separate. We believe you keep them contained. We've created a product to do that in our launching pad. We believe you change before you go in the woods, but you take that stuff back off when you get out of the woods. Um, so we believe you hang those things out. So we've created products to help with that education. Um, the launching pad's a great example of that. If you haven't seen it, check it out. It's pretty cool. It also is a bow case. So you know, if you're that guy who's running out and I'm gonna go hunt this morning, you can literally grab one product and go. Um, for us, that's how you hunt scent. That's how you contain. You know, I do personally use an O2 generator in mine. Um, I know that does help absorb some of the scent, but that's not the entire process, but it's something that helps. So there you go. And that product that Dennis mentioned, the launching pad, that is probably the new item that I am the most excited about this year. It, you know, like he said, it's a all-in-one bow case, hunting clothing container or carrier, and, you know, a changing pad outside of your truck in the morning and the evening when you're trying to get ready to head into the woods it's it's pretty awesome so if you want to learn more about that or any of the other products from sika gear visit sikagear.com and now let's get into the show so let's start with something that and again a lot of these topics will be mistakes that we've probably heard about we've probably talked about to some degree on the on the show so these aren't necessarily gonna be revolutionary like holy smokes i've never heard of that before um but they're important, and even if you are a diehard deer hunter and you've heard all these things a million times before, I don't think it can be emphasized enough and reminded enough about these things. And then finally, maybe the most important thing here, Dan, and you let me know what you think about this, but I think, you know, 
we're even guilty of it here on Wired to Hunt. You're right. We put out all these different articles and all these podcasts sharing all these tips and tricks and strategies and ideas and tactics. And there's a million things we're saying and that other people are saying and all the stuff out there. But none of it means crap if you don't implement some of it, if you don't take action. And I'm pretty sure, you know, and I'm because I've been guilty of this in the past, that I would bet like 80% of the things that people say, if I were to tell, you know, a group of people, the top 10 best things that they need to know about deer hunting, or whatever it might be. If I gave them these great ideas that I know are amazing and that works for people, I bet you eight out of 10 of those people won't even take action on most of it. Right. And so I think that's the big thing that I would just encourage everyone out there to do with all of our podcast episodes, with all of our articles. When you read this stuff, when you hear this stuff, you know, try to find a way to take action on some of these things and some things might not fit your style of hunting or your area but what you do find interesting and intriguing take action like do the work don't just say oh interesting and then forget about it when hunting season rolls around rolls around i mean do something about these things so when we walk through these common mistakes you've probably heard these things before but really think about okay i've heard this mistake but still every season somehow i end up doing it you know, what can you do differently this year to make sure you don't make this mistake again? I think that'd be my major goal for everyone today on the show listening is, is that you, know, you find one of these mistakes that we're going to talk about and actually think through a way that you can change it this year so you don't make that mistake and, and then really, really do it. Right. And in my last nine years of hunting, you know, I've been hunting since I was like 13, 14. I don't even remember. But then in 2006 is when I really jumped into the sport real heavy. And I started focusing on hunting mature deer. And it was then and from that point until today, every every one of these things we're going to talk about is are things that, is, that have happened to me I'm, and I'm sure you too. So it's not like we're sitting here going, hey, make sure you do this. Now, let me tell you why, because I messed up on it, you know, last year, the year before, the previous year, you know. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, let's let's just kick it off and start going through these, and, and, and hopefully there'll be some that can be helpful. And I think one right. of the most popular mistakes, one of the most common mistakes out there, and I've made it a million times, is, and we talk about it a lot, but getting lazy with entrance yep. and exit routes. And in particular, I personally think exit routes are the easiest to screw up. Mm -hmm. Um, and I say that because at least for me, when I'm heading into a tree stand, I'm on, you know, I'm on edge. I know that I'm sneaking in. My hunt is ahead of me still. So I want to make sure I don't ruin that hunt. I really want to be, be careful and quiet. I'm slow. I'm being strategic about how I get in and out. And I obviously have time to get there. Now, when I leave at night, lots of times if, or, you know, in the morning after my morning hunt or in the evening after the evening hunt, Maybe I've got something I need to do back home. Maybe I'm late for something. Maybe dinner's on the kitchen, you know, in the kitchen. Maybe whatever it is, I've been sitting in a tree for four hours in the freezing cold, and I'm just cold and sick and tired of being out there. There's a lot of reasons why after a hunt, you might just want to scoot back home quickly, and you're tired of being out in the woods, or you had a frustrating hunt, whatever it might be. I always have the temptation of just like, just get me back to the truck. Like I'm just ready to be done. Um, and because of that fact, I've had a lot of times where I, I knew I shouldn't do what I'm doing, and then I did it anyways, where I would walk through a field because I didn't want to deal with a 30-minute walk through a bunch of brambles and stuff in the middle of the dark. Or I got down early, even though I knew there was deer still around, and I spooked them. I knew I shouldn't do that, but I was like, screw it. I just got to get back. I got so-and-so going on. Um, or whatever it might be, 
lots of times that's a temptation that's easy to fall for. I've done it. I yep. bet you probably have too. Yep. Um, every year. Every year, yeah. And, and every year, though, I try to, and I think I get better every year in having like self-discipline. I think when it comes to that, it's just discipline, like having the, the wherewithal after your hunt to say, nope, I'm going to take the long way. I'm going to wait till way after dark, or I'm going to make a plan to make sure I can get out here right. Um, whatever it is, thinking through that beforehand and then sticking to it after your hunt is just so important. I think, you know, we, we go over and over it again, but when you're going after these mature bucks, you only have so many opportunities to screw up. You know, you just get a couple free passes, maybe. And if one of your free passes is burnt out, when you are walking back through the middle of the field in the night and there's a buck out there after dark that you didn't see and you bust him out of there, you might have just ruined your chances of ever getting a shot at that buck that you dreamed about the entire summer and fall. And you blew it because you want to get back to have some chili. Um, it's just not worth it, don't you think? No, I agree 100%. And I'll go to the, I'll go to the extent of this last year on a couple um, – stands where you know i'm looking at the weather i know that the wind is going to shift all right so um just imagine a square right and the northeast side the top right side of the square is where my tree stand was and my access route was for an east wind okay or no excuse me a west wind so i walked on the east side of this square where that i would say is the bedding area to get to my tree stand and the wind shifted almost 180 degrees and was coming straight out of the east by the time I left. Now, if I took that same access route back to my truck, my scent's blown into that, that square, into that bedding area. So I, have to, I had to take a completely different access route out because of the, the wind changed, and I headed straight east into the wind up until I got to this, this washout uh, from a horse pasture and walked all the way up. It, it took me another, you know, an additional 15 minutes to get to my truck, but I know my scent didn't go into that bedding area. Yeah. And that's key. Um, because not only do you need to make sure you're, you're visually or audibly not spooking those deer after your hunt, but, but scent is obviously still a big one. And that goes for when you're going into your tree and when you're going out of your tree, you always need to be aware of those things. Um, so like you said, going up a washout or a creek bed or a ditch, that's a great way to get out. Um, I had like a big, tall, excuse me, grassy um, field along one of my properties that, excuse me, I got the freaking hiccups. Um, <laughs> I had a big grassy field on one side and of a strip of timber, and then the other side was a cut crop field. And when I would exit a stand that I had over there, you know, if I tried to walk along the crop field, I was spooking deer all the time. So the next year, what I did is I cut a path through that tall grassy field on the other side of the timber so that... I could enter along the edge of the crop field because the deer weren't out there when I was heading into the stand in the afternoon. But when I exited, I could go, you know, 100 yards farther to the north and go through this little path I had through the middle of this really tall grass that was away from the food source enough that I could sneak through there without being seen and get out quietly. And that significantly reduced, you know, the number of deer I was spooking on my exits from that area. Um, so that's something to consider. There's, you know, if you can manage habitat in your property, you can even plant like screening cover, um, mm -hmm. where you can walk behind some trees that you planted or a strip of corn that you left or a strip of Egyptian wheat or something like that, that you can create a wall. So at least you can visually, um, be hidden on your entrance or exit routes. Um, you know, ditches, creek beds. Yeah. Yeah. All the above. Um, and another one that, you know, gets talked about a decent bit, um, 
it can sometimes be hard to pull off, but if you can do it, it is a really good way is get a ride. Um, if you're hunting near a field edge that you can at least get to a field, or if that's where your worried deer might be when you try to get out, uh, if you can have someone come pick you up, that's very helpful. You know, one example where I pulled this off, um, when I was hunting six shooter three years ago, I guess it was now, um, I wanted to hunt this food plot I had and it was in December and I knew I was only going to get a couple chances at them. Um, and I figured, you know, one, two hunts in that area. And if I screwed it up somehow and spooked him, I'd never see him again. Cause you know, just tons and tons of hunting pressure around this area. Um, I'd been leaving this property alone completely to try to make it a sanctuary so that he would, you know, stick around there during gun season. And he did. Um, but I knew, all right, I'm going under to hunt. I need a safe way to get out of there. Um, if I don't kill him, because if I, you know, I'll spook him. So I ended up convincing my wife to drive my truck back there and hang out. And then once I was done hunting, she came, picked me up, spooked all the deer out with a truck. I was able to pull, climb down the tree, walk to the field edge, hop into the truck and get out of there. And, you know, the deer just aren't going to be spooked in the same way by a truck as they would by a hunter walking along the edge of the trees. Um, So if you have the option to do that, that's a good one. It's not going to work for every situation, but, um, that's a that's a pretty safe way to get out without them knowing that a hunter's there. They they'll think it's a farmer or something. So, that's one exit idea that can be uh, can be worth having up your sleeve. Do you have any other thoughts on exit and entry routes, Dan? No, nope, uh, don't be lazy. Don't be lazy. That's probably a theme for a lot of these mistakes. So many of the mistakes that are commonly made are like common sense things that we just get lazy about and don't take the time to deal with. Right. And uh, man. It can be tough, especially later in the season, at least for me. Like, I don't know about you, but early in the season, it's easy because I'm amped up. I've been thinking about it all off season. I can pay attention to the details. But when it gets to day 10 of my rut hunt and I've been waking up at 3.30 every morning, it gets a little bit more difficult to stick to every one of my little things. Or when it's December 20th and I've hunted, you know, 80 times already this year and still haven't killed a deer, it gets a little tough to to cross all my T's and dot my I's. Um, well, and it's one of these things that some people just have to learn the hard way. You know, for me, that's the kind of, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of person who, yeah, I'll take advice, but I'm going to still do what I want. You know what I mean? And, <laughs> and for, for me, it took me to learn the hard way. It took for me to say, Oh my God, I should have walked in the other you know, direction, especially when you watch a 180 inch deer catch your ground scent. Yeah. That'll definitely make a lesson uh, stick. Right. Right. Or when you, when you see a, a, you know, a deer, giant deer and you, he's coming right towards you and you call, why would you call? He's coming right towards you, you know, lesson learned. Yep. Yep. It definitely, those personal experiences can be much more, uh, and that's, that's what I think that's what it takes. You know, someone who, you know, we talk about being a good hunter all the time at whatever that means, but you have to learn if you, if you don't learn from your mistakes and that's what it takes for a lot of these guys, including myself, you know, it's like, Oh, bing light goes off in my head. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to blind call. I'm not going to, you know, walk straight to my tree stand when I, sh- where I should take the long way around. Yeah. My hope is that, you know, by, you know, all the different media out there and with what we're doing, hopefully some people can learn from our mistakes and yeah. avoid them themselves and not have to learn it the hard way. But, you know, inevitably, in a lot of cases, you still do have to learn it yourself too. So right. 
What's uh, what's your next common mistake that we need to make sure we're not making in the next couple months? Well, believe it or not, Mark, it's not jumping into your good spots too early. Something we like to talk about, isn't it? I know. So, you know me. I'm a huge fan of hunting early season. But I I don't think people are understanding what I mean by that. And I'll explain here. If you have a good spot, a bedding area that typically holds you know deer and you have some trail cameras outside of that that's catching some movement either coming to or going away from the trail cameras um i used to be the kind of guy who used to cannonball in you know october 1st game time boom into the timber you know like a (laughs) wild you know like a wild bull running to my stand you're like i'm gonna kill a deer you know that's how you enter your house like after a day at work you slam (laughs) the the door door open open. what's for dinner And, that, and that's how I used to be, right? And then it, I got introduced to trail cameras and, and, and provide that, you know, those provided me with a lot of information about deer movement. So what I mean by jumping into to the good spots too early is let's say you have a, a spot that's a long walk-in and it's early season. I'm not going to – I'm not even going to touch that unless I have evidence – that deer are in that area like if i have a buck um a buck you know coming to a scrape or visiting a field edge or coming back to that bedding area and i catch him on a trail camera that's on a main trail or a pinch point you know i'm not i'm not going to touch that area unless i have proof that there is big deer there for especially for early season it's like i need proof to make that make that call yeah. Does that absolutely. make sense? Absolutely it does. So it's not like I'm hunting mornings just to hunt. It's calculated and I am I'm doing my research. I'm gathering my intel. And if I feel like it might be worth, I'm going to sit an observation stand, you know, a morning or a night before I jump into that area. I'm not just going to cannonball in there. Yeah, I think um... – uh, the phrase that Adam Hayes used last week is perfect for this, and this is this is how I like to approach deer hunting: yep. is surgically removing a mature buck from his habitat. It's a surgical strike, or as uh, my friend Craig Doherty likes to say, it's a drone strike. You know, yep. you're you're collecting this intel, you're analyzing that intel. You know exactly when you want to hit, where you want to hit, and why you want to hit there. And then when all those things line up, you go in and you tack. That's how I believe the most successful and consistent hunters of mature bucks operate. And that's right. how I try to operate. Um, and that, in my opinion, is the single biggest thing that has changed how I hunt and the success that I have is right. by doing this, by paying attention to the timing. So when you go and hunt these spots um, and why you do go in when you do, um, it's just it just cannot be understated we, we, we've, we've probably talked about it you know once every three episodes we probably talk about this general idea to some degree but waiting to the right conditions or the right time or the right intel to go into these certain areas is going to make or break your season in my opinion because if yep. you blow into these areas and pressure those deer before you really have an opportunity to kill them you're just taking yourself out of the game before it even starts right so i got a question for you i got and an answer i'm looking for a little bit of advice All right. Now, I have trail camera pictures from last year of Mark Kenyon in a pinch point at 1030 a.m. on October 3rd 
and 11 o'clock a.m. on October 4th, okay? That's damn near midday movement. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's pretty crazy. So, to, you know, if it was just one time, I would be like, okay, maybe he got bumped from his bed. Two times in a row, those two days. Now, we've had guests on the podcast say, we need, you know, if I got a deer there that day, I'm going to be in that area, you know, two days, you know, those, for three days that surround that date. And, you know, to because deer tend to do the same thing the same times every year. Do, would you be in that area the, the opening week of, uh, of the season to try to encounter that movement? Answer me this. What is what does it take to get into that spot? Is it the kind of area that's like, uh, is it going to be a really high risk thing going in there to hunt in the morning or middle of the day? Um, what's that going to be like? So last year I had, it's, it is the perfect, it's one of the best pinpoints I have on the property. It's the second best actually. And tons of deer travel in and out of this little, this where this corner of this cattle pasture meets a low, this low spot. And they don't cross, excuse me, they don't cross the fence. They drop down in, um, into this, this low spot and then head back up again, uh, by this, this fence corner, because if they go out into the pasture, you know, they get exposed. But what I've done is I've micromanaged this area and I've moved my tree stand to uh, the main trail that leads down into it. So, because the reason I moved it was because the thermals in the morning were kind of acting like ocean tides if there wasn't a consistent wind. So my scent was going up and then back down into the draw and up and then back down in the draw. And it was just blowing everything out. And then when the wind would, would pick up, it would, you know, blow my scent into a completely different direction, the direction that I initially wanted it to go. So my scent zone was gigantic. All right. And I was getting busted all the time. So I got out of there. This year, I moved it up on top of the ridge where this main trail goes down into that pinch point. And that's where I have my tree stand set up now. Can you get in there in the morning without spooking deer? Yes. I, if, I, if, I, if I take my time, I go in slow, and I do it on the right wind, I believe I can. And here's what I would do. And this is different than what I would have done last year probably. Mm-hmm. But – uh, Mr. Mark Drury was so compelling in his argument about the nature of an annual pattern for bucks. Mm-hmm. And then someone else, I can't remember who this was, but maybe, maybe it was Adam or someone else recently. Someone we talked to talked about yeah. the same thing, the annual pattern. Um, maybe it was Don. It was Don Higgins who talked about the annual pattern, right? Um, right. How they'll do things year after year. So so many people we've talked to recently have been reemphasizing this, that it is – you know, giving me more reason to pay attention to this even more than before. If the weather is right, so assuming you don't have like an 85-degree day, um, you know, that morning where it just doesn't seem like anything is going to move, I would probably, even though in the past I wouldn't have hunted mornings like that, I think with that kind of intel that you have, and if you can get in there without the high likelihood of spooking something, I think if you've got half-decent conditions, I'd probably be there. Okay. I... um and it's funny because this year, October 3rd and 4th, fall on a weekend, so I will be able to hunt it. And uh, hopefully a, a nice south wind happens because that's what I need, a, a south, maybe just a little bit southwest to get in there and have the wind do what I want. 
And that time of year, a south wind is pretty standard. So um, I kind of hope I, I kind of hope I get those conditions, and um, I think I'll go in and give her a try. Yeah, I think the important thing here is that you know you are going to go in here because of we've listed like four different Info. whys. All these yep. like trail camera pictures. You've identified this perfect set of an area where they're going to move through. You know you can get in there without spooking deer, assuming you have the right weather, or assuming you have the right wind. Um, all these factors go into why you would ever hunt there at that time. Ten years ago. I would have said, okay, if this is the best tree stand on the property, boom, October 1st, bam, I want to hunt there. I'm excited. Yep. And that would have been a bad, bad idea. Yep. Um, and so I think the difference in what we're really, what I really want to encourage everyone to remember is that, you know, if you are going to go into one of these better areas, there better be a whole lot of whys. You yep. better be able to list three, four, five, six different specific reasons why this is the right time, why that's the right spot at the specific time. Um, and I think if you start approaching your hunting like that, your success is just going to go up night and day because all of this is predicated on the fact that hunting pressure is the biggest influencer of deer movement, deer sightings during daylight, all that kind of stuff above and beyond everything we've ever talked about, about weather, moon phase, barometer, all those things are great and dandy and they naturally affect deer movement. But if you're in their property spooking deer all the time, you're just not going to see mature bucks during daylight. If you continuously do that, it's just not going to happen. So, you need to be very careful about how you apply that pressure, and that obviously comes from when you're hunting. So you need to be careful about when you hunt to minimize the pressure and then understand how all these other conditions affect deer naturally to make sure you are hunting at the right times in the right places. So that's uh, that's it. I'm done. That's my rant for the day. <laughs> that's important stuff, though. <laughs> so true, though. So important. Um Anything more on that one? What's next? Yeah. Um, how about this one? And this is you know, continuing in the similar vein here, but it's don't make the mistake of hunting the same tree over and over and over again because of pressure. You know, we're, we're, when you hunt, you're leaving scent. You are, some deer are hearing you. Some deer are seeing you. Some deer are smelling you while you're there. They might smell you when you walk out. They might smell you a day, delay, day later. Whatever it is, you are leaving sign and deer, especially mature deer, are going to react to that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so every time you hunt a tree stand, it's getting a little bit less likely you'll be able to kill a deer there every time because there's a greater chance that a buck's picked you off or learned something about your presence there. Um, and as we've talked about before, as you know and as I know, sometimes it gets easy to want to just hunt the same stand. Mm -hmm. You know you're going to see deer there maybe. It's easy to get to maybe. It's maybe been traditionally very successful for you. Uh, whatever it might be, I've certainly fell into this trap. Um, let's, just, let's just put all the cards on the table right now. I mean, if you only have a very small property to hunt and you have one tree stand on it, okay, I would suggest moving your tree stand around a couple times or add, having another tree stand in there just, you know, even if it's just 20 acres or 10 acres or whatever it is, have multiple options, even if it's small pieced. But if you're the kind of person who just loves to sit in a tree stand and, and observe nature and maybe kill a young deer that walks by, that's fine. That's awesome. But if, if you want to kill a mature deer, if there is mature deer on that small piece, every time you go in there, it, it learns about you. 
You know, that's what these deer do. They learn just as much about you as we learn from them. So hold up and don't go in there straight up until, until it's good. And we've talked about what those conditions are on this podcast until we're blue in the face. So it's up to, (laughs) you know, it's up to those, it's up to you, the listener to implement that, you know, every time you go in there and you don't see this deer, he is learning something about you because the wind and your scent, I don't care what kind of scent control um, steps you're taking, you are leaving scent there, period. Yeah. Yeah, it's so dry. I liked what Adam had talked about last week, the fact that Andre DeQuisto told his buddy, hunt a different tree stand every single night you hunt on your property, and you'll have completely different success. You know, he, he, had, he had told this story about how this guy had been hunting this property and, and never could get a big mature buck. He took Andre's advice. He hunted a different stand every time, and boom, he kills the biggest deer of his life. Yep. I think that's a really good example of, of what can happen when you change things up. Don't let those deer learn you. And I'll, I'll, I'll put it to you. I'll give you a specific example. I used to be a one tree stand setter myself back in the day, probably about 19 or excuse me, 2003, right when I got out of college, I saw a big buck in this field. And so I'm like, oh my, I'm going to sit in this stand every day and he'll come out eventually. And I did that. Well, in November, all the trees are off, uh, off the tree or all the leaves are off the trees. And I watch these deer come from a thick bedding area and they hold up until dark every single day until I can't see anymore. And then they leave and my trail camera shows pictures of these bucks and these deer in this field. So they learned my pattern. Oh yeah. doesn't surprise me either. I, I watched it firsthand. I saw them stand up out of these bedding areas, come to a staging area and wait. Yeah. And you know what's what's funny about this one? The the solution to fix this problem comes down to the same thing we've talked about this whole last 45 minutes. It's just having the gumption to actually do the extra work and, and do the harder thing, which is put another stand up, hang a yep. new set, move. Yep. Um, it just comes down to not being lazy. Yep. So I need I needed to find I needed to move in there to that staging area and set up very quietly that next night. And wait, but did I? No, because I thought, oh man, I have a ladder stand. I'm not going to be able to get it in there. Yeah, and this is I was of, my own worst enemy. Yeah, I think that I think anyone out there, and this is something that I keep on, you know, seeing more and more with what I'm doing, and and trying to change it more and more. But but just changing things up, adjusting when you have to. Um, I I, I want to throw this out there. If one of you guys or girls listening, if you try this this coming year. If you see something, you hunt a stand and you realize you need to adjust or you're just realizing, hey, I got to keep moving my stand. If you become more mobile, hunt different areas, avoid hunting the same tree stand over and over. If you do that and you have success with it, I want you to email me through the contact form Wired to Hunt and I will pick one of you. If there's only one of you, you you win by default. Um, If a bunch of people email back with success on this specific story, if you remember this after hunting season or during hunting season, email me, and I'm going to pick someone and give you a wired hunt hat and shirt because I would be super darn proud of you for doing that, for taking the extra effort to change things up. I would Um, would love to talk with them on the show. That would be awesome. That would be cool. That's something you know I want to start doing too um, in future episodes is is finding some way to get our listeners a little more involved. We'll we'll see what that looks like, Um, which – 
We do have the Whitetail Q&A podcast now, which is going to be getting people's questions on the air, which is cool. We'll, I'll mention that again at the end of the show. But, uh, but yeah, I agree. I want to talk to some of these people that are implementing some of the things we talk about on this show and actually having success with it. Hearing those success stories, I know they're happening. And I've heard about them in email, but I think we should be sharing those with our listeners too. So what's, uh, what's your next one, Dan? All right. So my next one, and this is something that I am going – I have no problem doing this this uh, next thing on evening hunts. But for morning hunts, I'm the kind of person who I get out there and I'm in my stand maybe 20 minutes before the sun comes up. I need to, and I challenge everybody else out there, to get to your stand earlier. Now, a lot of people say, you know, I've talked to, you know, people on both sides. I get out there real early or I get there five minutes before I'm supposed to because your scent's going to be cascading into the timber. Well, if your scent is going somewhere where the deer might bust you, then you're probably set up wrong. Right. By default, you're already already in trouble. Right. And if, and if you're walking an access route to that stand that is going to blow it out, you don't know when the deer are coming through. You're just hoping they come through during daylight hours or while you're in that tree stand. So my goal this year, especially for morning hunts, is to get to the stand at least 30 minutes to an hour before the sun comes up, probably closer to an hour. I want to be in there when the stars are still shining, and I want to have everything settle down to where the deer you know, I, I feel that there's there's instances where you get in there and there's a there's a spooking point where if I'm going 20 minutes before uh, sunlight, the deer are going, whoa, I'm going to take another route around. But if I'm going in an hour in, they might hold up, double check everything, then come through the area. Yeah, I 100% agree on that. Yeah, I think um, – this was our guest in episode number 60, 64 or something. I don't even know what it was, but John Eberhardt, Michigan guy. He was the one who convinced me in, in his book that I read, I don't know, a decade ago or something, um, about the importance of getting in there super early, especially on those morning sits. And uh, so I do exactly what you just talked about, Dan. I'm always trying to get in there about an hour beforehand. Like I like to be quiet by an hour. So I'll try to get in there like an hour and 15 minutes or an hour and 20 minutes before daylight so that there's a full 60 minutes of me sitting there quietly, letting it cool down. And I know that's excessive. Maybe some people might think, but like you said, Dan, I really do think it makes a difference. Um, And when it comes to, and again, all these things, it's these little details. It's taking the extra effort to move. It's taking the little bit of extra effort to get in a half hour earlier than you usually do. It's uh, all these little tiny things add up. And when it comes to trying to kill these mature old bucks, that's what you have to do. I mean, sure, you can get lucky once in, t- once in a while, but if you want to consistently have success on deer like this, and then even more so if you're trying to pull this off, you know, east of the Mississippi in Michigan or Pennsylvania or New York or Georgia or South Carolina or whatever, you have to become obsessive about this stuff if you want to be consistent with it um, because it's a game of inches. Um, my favorite football coach in the world, Mr. Mark D'Antonio at Michigan State, always talks about football as a game of inches. It's, you know, one little thing here can make the difference between winning and losing, and that's exactly what it is with, with hunting mature deer. I think it's, you just have to pay attention to those little things. Yep. Yep, I agree. So, I need 
I need to just do, it's one of those things like it's up to me to do it. It's not up to anybody else. I can't, you know, I got to set my alarm earlier. I can't, you know, Hey mom, if I, cause I, cause I, I don't live with, you don't live mom. with your mom anymore. <laughs> but I stay at their place when it's hunting season. Hey mom, get me up. So, uh, <laughs> yep, that's true. Um, it's, and none, I mean, nothing we've talked about here is rocket science. You know, if, if you just simply took these common sense ideas that we talk about all the time, that a lot of people talk about all the time, and if you just took the extra effort to really religiously do these things, your success rate would go up astronomically. I think just the fact is that most people, and, and like we've talked, we've both done it ourselves too, but most of us end up getting lazy, complacent for, you know, for whatever reasons there might be, there's always excuses. But it's just not following through on what we know we need to do. Yep. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick the next question and I'm gonna aim it towards you. All right, what you okay. got? Why do you use scent control? Why do you have a, a scent control regimen? Well, well, I mean, there's the very simple answer that obviously we know that the white-tailed deer's greatest defense mechanism is his nose, mm-hmm. um, and I realize the fact that you need to play the wind as much as you possibly can, right? The the number one thing we need to be thinking about when trying to set up on a deer is, is how that how that deer is going to use the wind and his nose, and then how we can appropriately set ourselves up so it, as best as possible avoid him getting downwind of us. Um, but that said, even though I'm always thinking about that, you just never know what's going to happen. Deer yeah. are wild animals. They don't follow our rules. They don't always follow what we think they're going to do. And there's always a chance that a deer is going to get downwind of you. Or even if a deer doesn't get downwind of you, like we just talked about a couple minutes ago, if your scent, your scent is getting out there, regardless of what you do, some amount of human scent is getting out there. Um, and when that scent is you know, blowing around or the next day a deer walks by and, and crosses your path, they'll smell you. And again, we want to keep that awareness that deer have about us hunting them as minimal as possible. So part of the way I can improve that is by having a really strict scent control regimen. Um, even with all the things that I do and use and all the things that you do too, um, I'm a firm believer that you can't beat a deer's nose hundred percent of the time. No way. Not going to happen. Um, all you can do is, is minimize it as much as possible. You can make a dent in it. You can get away with a little more. Um, so I try everything I possibly can to do that um just because again it comes down to details and maybe and this is an area that again i screw up sometimes i get lazy i'm in a rush whatever it might be but i shouldn't do this and as much as possible you guys shouldn't either is get lazy with your scent control um because of all these things i just talked about it's so important if you want to get a second chance at a buck or if you don't want to lose those chances you're going to have at a mature deer you need to minimize your scent profile as much as you possibly can. Do you agree with or disagree with anything I said there, Dan? Man, I tell you what, I I feel that access, the proper access to your tree stand, is very very important. Okay, if if you feel a deer may cross your path to when coming through this area then you're probably set up wrong or you need to have a different access to that tree stand uh, access route to that tree stand i am not a huge believer in what the kind of scent control extremes that most people take all right i believe in ozonics 
all right? I believe in a little bit of uh, that nose jammer stuff. I think that works awesome. But for me, I take my green showers, you know, just, I don't know. I don't know why because I, I don't feel that – I feel that if I use Dove or something with scent, it would have the same kind of effect as the green stuff would. I've I've been in you know obviously I hunt lower pressure areas than most but I've been at work all day long and have gone straight to the tree stand without spraying down without putting in you know my scent free deodorant or anything like that and have seen decent success you know and I know you talked about your um, you know this these are some of these are just precautionary measures just in case something does come downwind of you. I just feel that you can be in the right spot at the right time and have the right access to that stand without being 100% scent crazy, like scent control crazy. I, I can't argue with that. I mean, you can pull that off. Yeah. My my argument, though, would be, but what happens the 10% or 20% of the right. time when it doesn't work out right? Right. And I don't know. I guess I'm not a huge, a huge scent freak. I mean... I, during the rut, I'm taking one shower a day. If I, if you know, if, even if I go back in and take a nap, I typically take it in the morning for my morning hunt and the afternoon, uh, I'm using my ozonics and stepping in cow poop or horse poop on the way. And I, which I feel is an awesome strategy by the way. And I'm not joking. Step in <laughs> animal poop on your way to your stand. <laughs> yeah, no, no I, I follow you. I mean, yeah. I know you're not joking, but it just, <laughs> it, it just seems like a very much a Dan Johnson move. <laughs> yeah, it is a Dan Johnson move. But um, I, I don't know. I just I feel that there are I feel that there are certain things that we as hunters have been I don't I don't want to say swindled into thinking. You know, I feel that a majority of human scent comes out of your mouth. You know, from your gut, from what you eat, and that's that's where a majority of your scent comes from. Uh, and that it, they don't have any rebreathers or scent control for your breath, except for an ozonics in the tree, you know, but most, you know, I don't know about you, but do you have your ozonics on when you're walking to the tree? No. Or do you put any spray in your mouth for your, you know, while you're breathing? No. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? So it's like, how much are we really doing when we spray down with all this stuff and, and, and do all these things? I mean, how mu- I, I just don't feel it's doing enough to trick a whitetail's nose. Yeah, I mean, I can't – see, my take on this is I can't prove how much each individual thing helps. Yep. But it just comes down to me being the fact that every li- – because there's so many things that can go wrong on a hunt, right? right? Like wild animals, weather, whatever the deer wants. There's so many things that can go wrong. If there's something that I can do that's my choice, that's up to me, that might be able to help me incrementally, even like 1%, I'll take every single one of those 1% gains I can take. So I'll do 15 little things that maybe don't seem like a big deal. But if I do all 15 of those things every right every time, Mm -hmm. hypothetically, maybe that gives me a 15% chance better, and I'll take that every day. So that's my take on it. I understand what you're saying, but I personally would rather be OCD about as many things as I can to minimize the variables. Right. So that's, that's my take. It's a, it's a cost benefit analysis you got to do. That's right. That's right. So thank you. There's that. There's that. Um, I think the mistake though, 
was being my my thought process was that you know the mistake would be getting lazy about it um so that's my take on it i recommend you pay attention to the details as much as you can um but you got to play the wind right first you got to do all the other things right too right i mean there's there are you know like what it's like what we talk about one of those things when it comes to hunting these these big deer or these mature deer is finding a wind that is right for the deer and not necessarily right for you. So there's that fine line, that invisible line where your scent is going to almost bust you, get you busted. And, and finding that, that perfect line is, is very hard to do. Yeah. I think, uh, I think Adam did a nice job giving us an example last week of that, because I think it's one of those things that when you talk about, it can be hard for some people, it might be hard to visualize that situation. Yep. Um, so it's helpful to, to look at specific examples like what Adam shared with us um, and others. It's really important to figure that out. So what's uh, what's another mistake you want to share? Oh, boy. Um, you know, I think f- for us, for me, it's just following through with what I've what I've, the goals I've set for myself. I mean, every year I find myself getting tired and making mistakes without me knowing it. So like, or getting complacent thinking that, you know, every year deer come through this area or every year, you know, like clockwork when, you know, I need to take some of my own advice and just do instead of, you know, coming up with all these crazy plans or I, you know, I overanalyze. I know you do too. We talk about it all the time. I, I feel like, I should just start going with my gut more. Take the information that I have, that I've learned, and just go with my gut. Don't sit here and go, well, the, if the wind is just a little bit more this way, maybe I should hunt this stand. Or Because, you know, like uh, Adam Hayes said last week, you know, typically the gut reaction is the best reaction. Yeah. But I do think, again, it's just my take, but I do think – you need to train your gut, you know, oh, yeah. like, oh, yeah. like, uh, and I know like, right, we're doing this kind of thing. Um, but if I were to say this 10 years ago, if I was following my gut, I wouldn't be seeing much at all. You know, um, yeah. it's only after you think through a lot of these things, you see these situations, you test theories, you get out there in the woods that your quote unquote gut can start to really be accurate. And, and I think, you know, for me, it like, it's a balancing act, right? Um, we still want to do some type of, you know, if we want to perform a surgical strike, a drone strike on this deer, you have to analyze things, but it's knowing where's that line between developing a strong plan versus totally overanalyzing it. I think that's the key is figuring out where that line is and making sure you're not crossing it. Um, and that's, that's the trick. And I think that's where, you know, in a deer hunter's career trajectory no not career but you know as we grow as a deer hunter there's a a point you know we're we're learning to hunt we're just figuring out how to see deer and how to get a shot at a deer and eventually we kill a deer and then someday we some of us decide that we want to hunt mature deer so then we learn how to kill mature deer on occasion and as we're going through all this we're learning all these different things about how deer you know operate and how we can uh, take take advantage of that and we get to this point where we start caring about the things that you and me are talking about like the things we're talking about all these details all these specific conditions and how to set up in a certain way and how such and such will affect deer and how that might influence where we want to hunt, blah, blah, blah. This is pretty advanced stuff, right? I mean, probably most deer hunters out there are not thinking about this kind of thing, but 
for those people that are at the level where they're starting to think about this stuff, there's that first step, which is thinking about these things. The next step is understanding how this affects your strategy. And then that next plateau, well, I don't know if it's plateau, but the peak, in my opinion, is the Jedi level that someone like Adam Hayes or Andre DeQuisto or, or all these people that we talk to, that Jedi level is when you know how to analyze these things. You know how to take all these inputs and analyze it and then come up with a solution. And then it becomes something that then becomes gut instinct because you don't need to think about this stuff and, and obsess over it. It becomes second nature. And I think that Jedi status is something that doesn't come for a long time. It takes a lot of experience. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of screwing up. And it takes a lot of time just thinking about these things. Um, and so I don't think we need to feel bad when we make mistakes, when we try to analyze this stuff and analyze it wrong, or when we get caught up in it. It's natural. It's going to take time. Um, but it's, uh, man. I'm it's, just saying don't ignore it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's Because I have a, I, I almost, I, like, I go a lot by feel. That, that's just me. Like, I... I, that's I, for my life. And then it's like when I talk about deer hunting, uh, I kind of push my, my feeling off and I, I go to, to a numbers game and I'm, and I, I feel like a lot of, a lot of hunters, including myself, if they acknowledge that feeling, they, they, you know, they may or may not be successful, but we're, we're predators too. You know what I mean? We're animals. And I'm, I'm sure we have some kind of sense, sense, you know, that, you know, the way our lives, the way we live our lives today may, um, turn down those senses, so to speak. But I think that, I think that they're in us. And if we have the ability to acknowledge it and to use it, I, th I think that's, that we can, that will be a, a great tool for us. Yeah. It's, it's all about getting in, in tune, tune. with that. Yeah. Yep, getting exactly. in tune with that. That's kind of hippie talk, though. It's good, though. It's yeah. good. I, yeah. I like your hippie talk. Good. <laughs> All right. How about another one? I think we can cover another one or two, maybe. Um, how about this? Calling. Yeah. It's easy. Yeah. Calling is something that it's one of those kind of get-rich-quick type deals where mm -hmm. it's like it's, it's a little tool, it's a trick that you see on TV where you watch, uh, you see an ad in the magazine or something that's like, wow, this will call a deer in, boom, easy, they'll come in right to where I'm at, and I'm going to kill a deer. I need and, to get my black rack out, slam it <laughs> together, and you know, a booner will be in front of my stand. Yeah, and if I have this product, it doesn't matter where I hunt, as long as I'm within 200 yards of seeing that animal, because if I see him, he'll come right to me. Boom. Boom. And unfortunately, that's just not true in almost all, almost all scenarios. Yeah. Um, I think calling can be a very useful tool and tactic when applied in the right situations at the right time and in the right way. Um, but it's not a cure-all. It's not something you can do all the time willy-nilly, and it's it's not going to just be something that's going to work for you all the time. Um, so common mistake is calling at the wrong times or just calling too much in general, I would say. Um, I personally think that Blind calling, it's something that I used to do a bunch, and now I almost don't do it all anymore. I might do a little bit of blind rattling with a, a strategy um, if, for a specific reason, but I think that when you're calling, you don't know where a deer is, there's a good chance that you could unknowingly put yourself in a position for that deer to find out where you are. 
because you're calling attention to you. Even though you're calling attention to yourself and saying, I'm a deer, you're still calling attention to the fact that, hey, there is a sentient being over here that you might want to check out. And so that deer, that deer might look up in the area. You might not even know there's a deer around, but he might spot you moving because now he knows there's something over there. Or you might not know there's a deer around, but he happens to hear you. And he says, well, I want to know what that grunting noise is over there. So he's going to circle downwind of you and smell you before you even knew he was in the area. Um, or maybe you there's this deer 75 yards out and some thick stuff and you're blind calling away and he doesn't come out. So 10 minutes later, like, ah, nothing came out. I'm going to try again. Grunt, grunt, grunt. 20 minutes later, he still doesn't come out, but that's because he's sitting there in that patch of thick stuff staring in your direction saying, what the heck is that? And you keep calling, and that deer obviously eventually figures out that's not natural. And you spook that deer without ever knowing that he was in the area. All these different examples of ways that you can educate deer by calling too much or at the wrong times, I think, lend itself or makes me believe that calls, at least I will only use calls in specific scenarios when I can see a deer, I can watch his reaction, and I can make sure that he's not going to use that um, signal for me to then learn what I am. Mm -hmm. What's your take? That, I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, to be, to be honest with you, if it's always good to have your calls with you, but if you're in a high pressure situation, like, you know, I've never hunted in Michigan or Pennsylvania, so maybe I shouldn't comment on it. But if you're in a high pressure area where, you know, other guys are rattling at this deer, just leave your, just leave your antlers in the truck. Yeah. make your move based off those hunters and what they're doing. If that's, if that's an option. But for me, I have literally learned this particular lesson, the hard way, every, like every time, every calling mistake a person's made, I've made it. And to this day, the only time I will grunt is if it, if I see a deer, I want to come in. The only time I will rattle for the most part is if I see a buck that I want to shoot now, if it's the last day or last two days of my vacation, I'll throw, I'll throw Hail Mary's out there and I'll rat blind rattle, but I'm not, I'm not blind calling anymore yeah. except for that, that instance. I, th I just know? think there's, there's too many risks. Yep. You know, I'm at, you know, we all know what deer do when we see them, they loop down, down wind and they, they try to wind us. Now, if you're blind calling, just imagine what the deer are doing that you don't see. They're doing the same exact thing, just in a bigger, a bigger circumference, and they're they're just they're busting you without even seeing you, yeah, and, or you seeing them. Yep, yep. I think it's it's super common because we see people using calls all the time on TV, and they show the situations where they're successful with it. And it looks incredible and calls can be, you know, they can work really well in certain situations. And that's awesome. I mean, that is fun to rattle in a buck and see him charging in or snort wheeze at a buck and see him puff up and come strutting in wanting to kick your butt. That's awesome. Yep. Um, but just don't be swayed too much by those things and get too excited. Yep. That's what, it, that's what I'd say. It's one of those things too, where this is a, this is also a learning experience. It's you, even if you see a deer, you read his body language and that may deem yes or no to call too. Definitely. You know? So, and that's, that's a hard thing to learn. 
unless you spend a lot of time in the tree stand and, and, and have had some interactions with some deer, whether they're making a scrape or raking a tree or, or they're, they're kind of walking real slow with, you know, full alert forward, you, you know, don't call at him then or call while he's making a scrape or, you know, there's so many different scenarios, but, you know, if we were to make a t-shirt, it would ha- it would say, stop blind calling. <laughs> Dan, if you make that shirt, I will, we if you design, if you design that shirt, I will wear it and I will buy some, like a, okay. bottle, like a handful of them. Okay. Uh, let me, let me throw it, throw it together. <laughs> Let's do it. And then yeah. maybe people will want to buy it yeah. <laughs> or maybe we'll not. <laughs> make, we'll make millions off of it by a giant, uh, chunk of timber. And then, um, this is, this is our plan. This is, uh, let me, you know, of course my idea. So it's going to be like an 80, 20 split. Right. You get 20%. Okay, that seems, I mean, it just seems fair. <laughs> oh man, um, oh shoot! You know, I know what I was gonna say. I was gonna say we've talked about this before, which we've talked about a lot of these things before. But I do think it's helpful to review. And if you didn't hear some of these past episodes, um, when it comes to calling, my my thought process is: if I call once, if that deer hears me and visually you can see that he heard you, and he starts to come your way, I stop calling. Mm-hmm. not going to call anymore. I've seen so many people, I've done it before too. Like he hears you, he starts walking your way, but then he stops and he stands there. I'd start calling again. I just keep calling away. That's a big mistake. Um, so don't call after you have his attention and he's moving your direction. Um, and don't, don't call after you get busted. Yes. That was the next one. If you, if he, <laughs> if he obviously doesn't like what he's hearing, doesn't like what's going on, he starts moving away or he busts and spooks, you know, don't try calling anymore because you're just educating even more. It's like, all right, there's something here I didn't quite like. I'm going to leave. And then he hears, you know, a bazooka going off in the tree. And he's like, yep, okay, my, my instincts are right. That's an idiot hunter. Yeah. Don't don't give him that. Yeah. Don't give him that at all. So that's calling. Common mistake. Um, Dan, do you have a final one you want to cover? Because I think we should probably wrap it up. Man, we've, we've you know, this is our 70th episode. Yeah, 70 episodes. We've covered a lot. I mean, really what what I'm going to recommend between now and whenever your season starts is to go back and listen to some old podcasts about what, you know, and, and they're pretty much labeled of what they are. And, you know, whether it's calling or it's how to plant a food plot or, you know, whatever whatever it is that you want to know about, Go back and listen to old podcasts, and there's a tons of information that we've already discussed that, that's out there for you. Oh, yeah. Just re, re-listen to it, get what you need, and, and then you know absorb that information. Don't just listen to it. Hear it. And, and take action on it. And take action on it. And you know, that doesn't go for you. I mean, that goes for me. Here, here I am on a podium you know, telling you guys what to do. I got to do it, too. And I'm just as guilty every year of not doing it. Oh yeah. So it's like I'm a hypocrite at times. I, I just need to, you know, boom, do it. Boom, yeah. do it. No, no. Boom, I think it's it. I think it's fair to say that both you and me and any other other person out there that talks about you know sharing their deer hunting advice, we yeah. all make mistakes. We're all making a lot of these same mistakes. We're just like anyone else. We're just simply trying to learn from as many of those mistakes as we can, minimize the mistakes, get a little better every year. And share some of those learning experiences. That's all I think we're trying to do here. Um, and facial hair kills big bucks. And, well, <laughs> it's, it's a fact. 
unfortunately, that doesn't it. that doesn't serve well for my future. Um, but I'm I'm growing a little more every year. So uh. I mean, <laughs> I'm I'm serious. You put you put a little time and effort into your facial hair. It's gonna happen for you. Well, what can I do to improve my facial hair? Rogaine or something. Uh, <laughs> my grandpa. My here's a funny story. My grandpa. <laughs> this is kind of gross, but he goes. Oh, you want to you want to have a goatee like your uncle? You got to put a little chicken manure in in your bottom lip, and then a little pig <laughs> manure on the outside of your lip. I'm like, what What would that do? He's like, the pig manure pulls, and the chicken manure pushes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. There you go. And that might be a little precursor to how I am. Today. Yeah, I was gonna say this explains <laughs> this explains a lot. Your family tree had a strong influence on you, I think. That's right. But seriously, facial hair kills big bucks. Facial hair helps Dan kill big bucks. Not me. Everybody. Everybody. So I'm, you know, if you're a woman, you better try. <laughs> All right. Well, there you there you go. That, that'll be our parting advice today. <laughs> Dan's gonna leave you with that gem of wisdom. <laughs> and you're gonna edit out the last ten minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're just going to nix this whole thing. Yep. <laughs> We've got a 35-minute podcast today with just me, Mark, just talking. Mark talking. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, this was fun. We got to just kind of. <laughs> <laughs> this was fun. Hopefully there's something helpful within this, um, which I think there was. But uh, with that, I think we'll wrap up the show, Dan. We, um, we have a couple updates. Number one, we, we mentioned it briefly before, but the new podcast from Wired to Hunt has launched. It's called Whitetail Q&A. It's a short-form podcast twice a week. We're listening to one of your listeners submitted questions, and then me or an expert guest is answering that question for you, and that's the whole episode. 10 to 15 minutes long usually, short and sweet, and straight to the point. So make sure to check that out. It is now on iTunes if you search for Whitetail Q&A. You'll see it there, or Stitcher if you use an Android device, or you can find it on the Wired to Hunt website at wiredtohunt.com slash whitetailqa. And if you go there, you can submit your own question. So please do that. We want your questions. We want to answer them. Um, If you're listening to Whitetail Q&A or the Wired to Hunt podcast on iTunes and you're enjoying them, we, of course, as we always say, really, really, really appreciate you leaving a rating or review. We're almost to 300 reviews. Um, I think we're at 296. Um, so it'd be awesome to get over that 300 mark, and we appreciate your help doing that. Um, other than that, if your season's opening up, which I know a couple people are, I know Nebraska opens up in a day or two soon here in North Dakota and some other states like that. If you're hunting, good luck out there. Um, of course, we do want to thank our partners who help make the Wired to Hunt podcast possible. So big thank you to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And so with that all being said, thanks for joining us. We appreciate you. Good luck out hunting there, and stay Wired to Hunt. Hunt.